Well, we have chapters 28, 29, and 30 are all concerning the sacraments or the ordinances of the church, specifically baptism and the Lord's Supper. As we're going to see in chapter 28, it's going to be just a summary statement on the ordinances themselves. But then in chapter 29, we're going to have a dedicated chapter on baptism. And then in chapter 30, we're going to have a dedicated chapter on the Lord's Supper. And I went back and forth on whether or not I should teach baptism and the Lord's Supper together. I chose to separate them because the confession uses some language that is common among Protestant churches, specifically those within a Reformed tradition, but may not be so common among uh, some of us who grew up in more low church evangelical backgrounds. So for instance, when we talk about the Lord's Supper as being the spiritual presence of Christ, what does that mean? Does that make us Roman Catholics? Well, no, it doesn't, uh, but it's an important doctrine. And I wanna be able to spend a little bit of extra time exploring those things for the sake of familiarity this next week. So this week might be slightly shorter than normal, uh, because all of us in here, to my knowledge, are committed uh, Baptists in our doctrine. Uh, and so uh, we'll tease out a few nuances here and there, but more than anything, I hope what it does is it reinforces for you uh, what it is that you already believe the scriptures to teach. And for those of you who will be listening in the future on podcasts or otherwise, perhaps you might find it useful or even persuasive. Okay. Notice on your handout, there are two chapters are right there. The first is going to be of baptism in the Lord's Supper. We're going to see two things there. We're going to see its divine institution and its right administration in the two paragraphs. And then later on, we're going to consider the chapter on baptism, chapter 29. We're going to see it defined in the first uh, paragraph, or in the, <clears throat> excuse me, in the first paragraph. And then in paragraphs two through four, we're going to consider the various aspects of its administration, including its proper subjects, its proper elements, and its proper mode. And so if you would, open up your copies of the confession. I'm using the updated modernized version, though I am going to reference the older version at least once tonight. We're going to be looking at chapter 28 and 29. Chapter 28, beginning in paragraph 1. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of positive and sovereign institution. They are appointed by the Lord Jesus, the only lawgiver, and are to be continued in His church to the end of the age. These holy appointments are to be administered only by those who are qualified and called to administer them, according to the commission of of Christ. So you see here we have an overview statement on the ordinances themselves, specifically their divine institution there in paragraph 1, as well as their right administration in paragraph 2. I just want to consider each one of these in order. Consider first of all that first paragraph, baptism and the Lord's Supper, the ordinances divinely instituted. We're going to see three things. We're going to see their institution, their origination, and their continuation, three things to be considered. First of all, consider their institution. It says that baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of positive and sovereign institution. Those two words, positive and sovereign, should ring a bell if you've been around for our previous studies in the confession. 
To talk about a positive institution doesn't mean positive as opposed to negative. It means posited as opposed to not present. It's something that is put into something. And so, in this case, referring to positive laws. Now, going all the way back to chapter 19, we talked about positive laws and we talked about moral law. God's moral law is that law which is written on all men's hearts from creation by virtue of being made in his image. It's then enshrined principally in Ten Commandments, and then it's summarized by the Lord Jesus Christ in the two greatest commandments, that we would love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's commandments one through four, the first table. And we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's commandments five through ten, the second table of the law. That is the law written on all men's hearts everywhere. And yet God, beginning with Adam, then with Israel, who is a type of second Adam, and then in the new covenant under the true and last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, within each one of these covenants, the covenant of works, the, co the old covenant, and then the new covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ, or God himself, as the covenant maker, posits laws that are not themselves inherently moral, but are subject to change by sovereign decree because God, the covenant maker, is free to change them. God's moral law is immutable as God is immutable. God is life, is for the preservation and the giving of life, therefore murder is wrong. That is an immutable law. However, how we might see, for instance, under the Old Testament, uh, that those who murder others would be punished, and on what grounds and what constitutes murder, civilly speaking, those things would be posited under the Old Covenant. We see the same thing, and in particular for our own studies tonight, circumcision is going to be a positive law. There's nothing inherently moral that is unchangeable or mutable about circumcision as a sign of a covenant. That's why, under the New Covenant, the sign is changed. A new positive law is posited in the context of the New Covenant in baptism. And so when it says that baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of positive and sovereign institution, it's making a bold claim, and it's key for a Baptist polemic against paedo-baptists. Namely, that since the Lord Jesus Christ is the originator of this institution, and he is the only lawgiver, that is the one who sovereignly posits it in the context of this new covenant, <clears throat> excuse me, then we are to understand the definition of baptism not according to the Old Testament sign of circumcision, but according to the New Testament teachings on baptism alone. That is where we begin. That'll be different than the way that our Pado baptist friends might understand. They're going to begin with the Old Testament, and they're going to read it into the New Testament, flattening, as it were, redemptive history. We could talk about this a little bit later in the Q&A. What our Pado baptist friends recognize, just as we do, a covenant of grace. However, they recognize that covenant of grace, there's one that overarches both the Old and the New Covenants, and while the Old Covenant and the New Covenant are different outwardly, they are one and the same in substance. The Baptists come along later, and this is why chapter 7 in the Second London Confession is so important. 
it's going to argue that no, there is indeed one covenant of grace, but it's not administered in two different ways across two different covenants. No, the new covenant is the covenant of grace, and that under the old covenant, in which the substance of the covenant of grace is not to be found, we find the promises of the covenant of grace revealed in, quote, farther steps. Revealing it one step after another, one covenant after another, until it finds its full realization, its full revelation in the person and the work of the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in this way, by phrasing it in the way that they are, the Baptists are arguing that in order to define baptism, we don't begin with circumcision and then read the ordinance into the New Testament. We must begin with the New Testament and then read backwards to the Old and acknowledge the discontinuity that's there. So when we talk about differences between our Paedo-Baptist friends and ourselves as Credo-Baptists or those who hold the believer's baptism, it's an argument between uh, continuity and discontinuity. Whereas our Paedo-Baptist friends see more continuity between the Old and the New Testament, the substance of the covenant of grace being in both, though the outward dressing being different, we see more discontinuity. We see the promises of the covenant of grace under the Old Covenant, but not its substance, its substance being exclusively confined to the New Covenant. Therefore, the positing of baptism is utterly unique. It is not meant to be paralleled uh, in any way or seen as synonymous with an Old Testament sign, namely circumcision. That positive law under the Old Covenant has passed away without people in that covenant, a new positive law and a new and better covenant in which the substance of the covenant of grace is established by the blood of Christ has been established by sovereign decree. And this ordinance of baptism, it says, its continuation is until the end of the age. It's one specifically given to his church. Why is it only given to the church? Because it is a law posited in the context of a new covenant for Christ's new covenant people. <laughs> so baptism is not a law that's binding on all people everywhere. It's not a moral law. It's a law that is posited in the context of the covenant of grace or the new covenant. That's why it's only binding on the church. And the administration of it is to continue until the end of the age, or as one author put it, it is the sign of the church militant waiting for the day of triumph uniting us to Christ, reminding us of our fellowship with Him, and reminding us of the certainty of our victory. So we have baptism in the Lord's Supper divinely instituted, but now we see in the second paragraph under chapter 28 that it's to be rightly administered. It says these holy appointments are to be administered only by those who are qualified and called to administer them according to the commission of Christ. Now, I want you to notice there's two proof texts that are there. Matthew 28, 19 and 1 Corinthians 4, 1. Now, we all know, I think, most of us here, Matthew 28, 19. Let's think about the Great Commission. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Next verse, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. And so... That first supporting text of Matthew 28, 19 is providing the commission to administer the sacraments. 
it is specifically given to the apostles and then carries over to the churches built on the apostolic gospel who are to carry out Christ's commission in the world. It's a churchly ordinance made on the, uh, administered on the foundation of the apostolic gospel to all of those who repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the second proof text, and we want to go look at this, 1 Corinthians 4.1, identifies those who are charged within the responsibility of administering them. This is how they put together their doctrinal logic. 1 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 1. He says, this is how one should regard us. Now he's specifically talking about that apostolic ministry. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And what the, what the writers of the confession are doing by quoting 1 Corinthians 4.1 is by saying that there are certain people commissioned as stewards of the gospel that's inherent in their ministry to guard in their high calling the mystery of the gospel therein. In other words, we don't play fast and loose with it. That those who are qualified according to their godliness and that are able to teach, that is, they're rooted in the apostolic gospel, they, they're able to teach according to the whole counsel of God's word, those specifically that are called in apostolic fashion, though we're not apostles by office, to teach the word and to pray and to lead the church are therefore called to administer the ordinances according to the mysteries of God in the gospel. It's a high calling by which those who shepherd the flock guard the flock, identify the flock, and care and feed the flock. 1 Corinthians 4.1. James Renahan, commenting on this, said this, that the minimum requirement to be an acceptable administrator of baptism was recognition by the church as a gifted brother. Now, you remember when we were talking about the doctrine of the church that there were two offices to the church. There were those who served as elders or pastors. They're one and the same thing and those who served as deacons. Some served the word, others served tables. But there was a third non-office, but a group of faithful brothers in the church that could be authorized by the church to stand up and preach the word, and they were called gifted brothers. Now, what Rinehan is arguing is that that it's not merely pastors, but those gifted brothers qualified by both their godliness and of their doctrinal integrity, who are, uh, he says, that's the minimum requirement to be an acceptable administrator of baptism. He says, baptism was less important than preaching, and therefore those who were approved as preachers could be administrators. Now, by implication, all of the particular Baptist churches then and all the way up until recently would have understood that in both instances, whether speaking of elders or of gifted brothers, only authorized and qualified men could administer the sacraments. It was an extension of the office of elder, primarily, who have the primary responsibility of word, prayer, and sacrament. And so their argument then moves from the greater to the lesser, that if a man was called to preach the word, then he is called to administer baptism, and perhaps in rare instances when it's administrated, the Lord's Supper because these ultimately are the tokens of God's blessing on the ministry of the word. And so if you were to gather with our church on any given Lord's Day, you'll find that you come and receive the elements from our elders. 
and that's by design. It's because we want our elders to have our eyes on our flock as we aim to, to love them, know them, and shepherd them, to be among them, to see who's there. And that as those who have been called by the church recognize as being both ministerially competent and qualified, or and uh, and, and qualified in our character for the office, that we are therefore made stewards of this particular ministry in our church, of word, prayer, and sacrament. And so one of the reasons then that we have the elders administer, stand at the tables and administer the ordinances to those who have been invited to come forward is because this is an important part of the pastoral office. Well, that's just the summary chapter, chapter 28 and 29, talking about the ordinances themselves. But now we're going to move on to talk specifically about baptism. That is in chapter 29. And we're going to see, just again, four paragraphs, two sections. In the first paragraph, we're going to see baptism defined. And then in the second, third, and fourth paragraph, we're going to see baptism administered. Baptism defined and baptism administered. Let's begin in that first paragraph. Read with me if you would. Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ. To those baptized, it is a sign of their fellowship with him in his death and resurrection, of their being grafted into him, of remission of sins, and of submitting themselves to, through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. Notice, first of all, that it refers to baptism as an ordinance. It's recalling what we just looked at back in chapter 28. And specifically, we're going to have two modifiers on this ordinance that are going to, that are going to further strengthen the polemic against paedobaptism and make a positive argument for credo-baptism or believer's baptism as a uniquely posited law in the context of the New Covenant. Notice, baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament and that has been ordained by Jesus Christ. He's saying an ordinance of the New Testament, it's saying uniquely in the context of the New Covenant, the New Covenant being that in which the, the substance of the covenant of grace is established, and it's established uniquely by Jesus Christ. Now, the name that they're using, Jesus Christ, is important because it's using his mediatorial name. It's the name that he assumes to himself from the office of mediator. It is through Jesus Christ who lived, died, lived again, and now has been, has been exalted to the right hand of majesty on high until he returns again. It is that Jesus Christ who now shares with his people in the context of the new covenant all of the blessings and the benefits of salvation. And so the Paedobaptists considered baptism to be the new covenant equivalent of old covenant circumcision, which is why they believe that infants are right to receive it. But the Baptistic Congregationalists intended these modifiers of the New Testament and ordained by Jesus Christ to indicate a distinction between the signs of both the old and the new covenant. And that meant that the definition of baptism, as I mentioned earlier, had to be drawn from New Covenant or New Testament scriptures and thus excluded infants from the sacrament. This should not be anything new for those of you who have spent any amount of time studying believer's baptism. This is the fundamental distinction between our paedobaptist brethren 
and those who would maintain believer's baptism or Baptists as we are. Now, let me just add a qualifier. Baptists in no way, not in the 17th or 18th century or in any century since, and certainly not now, consider paedo-baptist churches, whether it be Presbyterian or Anglican or otherwise, to not be true churches. We gladly recognize that these are true churches and yet recognize their paedo-baptism to be scriptural error. And insofar as anyone baptized as an infant is not obeying what we would understand to be a clear command of Christ to be baptized upon a profession of faith credibly as a believer to be in disobedience to Christ and his positive command. So while they are true churches, Baptists would call our paedo-baptist friends irregular or against the rule of Christ. And they would say the same of us. And yet neither side is anathematizing the other accusing one or the other of not being true churches. At the end of the day, its impact is felt mostly in how we organize our churches, define our membership, um, among other things. But we believe and we preach and we confess the same God and the same gospel. And so it's key that when I use words like polemic, which really just means a strong argument against something, that making a strong argument against another brother or sister in Christ does not mean I don't think you're a Christian. What it does mean is that I just think you're wrong. I think you're misunderstanding what the scriptures teach, but I love you and am for you for the gospel's sake. And so let's open up our Bibles and see if we can arrive at a mutual understanding of what the scriptures teach between now and when Jesus returns and everyone will be a credo Baptist. <laughs> Continuing on, it's not just an ordinance we see in paragraph one, it's also a sign. To those baptized, it is a sign, it says. This is another key aspect of a Baptist polemic against Pado Baptist friends. Unlike the Pado Baptists, Baptists generally didn't refer to baptism as a seal. Our Pado-Baptist friends refer to baptism as both a sign and a seal. Why do they refer to it as a seal? It's because it's looking forward to a salvation they believe will come by way of covenant promise to their children. It's sealing them not only for their conversion for the day of redemption, but Baptists who don't understand baptism to have a forward-looking uh, seal... They don't understand baptism as a forward-looking seal. They understand it merely then as a sign, as something that signifies something. Rather, what Baptists argued was that the Holy Spirit is the seal of redemption. Remember what Paul writes in Ephesians 1.13, that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption, that the Holy Spirit is the seal, not the ordinance. And all those who have been united to Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, sealed by Him for redemption, then receive the sign of baptism. And then it's going to go on to argue that baptism signifies four truths. Look back at that paragraph. Four truths that baptism signifies. First, it signifies fellowship with Christ in His death and His resurrection. These truths are too good to merely summarize. We need to see what the Scriptures say. Turn, first of all, to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. 
Romans chapter 6. Do you not know, verse 3, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Go to your right, Galatians chapter 3. Beginning in verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoning until the coming faith would be revealed, locking us up in our sin, showing us to be sinners without hope, but pointing always to Christ when he came. This is the argument of the, of the chapter, that the promise given to Abraham was pointing to Christ, that singular seed, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that the law given 430 years later to Moses did in no way annul the promise. It has always been centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what did the law do then? It held captive, it imprisoned in sin until Christ came. It was a guardian. It was a teacher. But now that faith has come, that is the full revelation of the gospel, we are no longer under a guardian because the old covenant law has passed away. Verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have now put on Christ. Colossians chapter 2. See to it that no one, verse 8, takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands at its spiritual by putting off the body of the flesh that is, of your sin nature, by the circumcision of Christ. You have a new heart, a new nature. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so the first thing that is a sign of is our fellowship with Christ. Or if you remember from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, our participation in Christ. That his life is now our life. That all that belongs to him that has been given to him by the Father as a result of his obedience according to the covenant of redemption, is now administered to the saints in the covenant of grace. And baptism signifies our fellowship with Christ and our participation in all of those blessings and benefits of justification, that is the forgiveness of sins and the imputation of righteousness, of sanctification, of being set apart for His holy use and being made more like Christ, and of our future glorification, that we are being transformed from one shade of glory to the next 
until we attain that incorruptible body whereby we will see with eyes that are no more corrupted by sin the very glory of God in the face of Christ. We will behold his face. Quorum Deo is what we look forward to. And all of that is ours in Christ. We participate in him in baptism is a sign pointing to the things signified, and what it signifies is Christ and our participation in his life. It also recognizes that we've been engrafted into him. That's the language that I was just talking about, that we draw our life, spiritually speaking, from him. He strengthens us. He gives us his righteousness. What is true of him is now true of us. He is the vine and we are the branches. And all of us who are rooted in the vine in Christ bear fruit, even much fruit. But it's also a sign of our remission of sins, the removal of sins. And it's using that language specifically instead of forgiveness because that's what washing does. To be washed from head to toe is to be washed not only of the penalty and the condemnation of sin, but to hold forth the promise of its corruption being swept away once and for all at the resurrection. And we look forward to that day. Finally, it is of submitting ourselves to God through Jesus Christ to live and to walk in newness of life. Just as Christ is raised from the dead, so now we have been raised with him. And insofar as our sins have been removed and we've been engrafted into him and we participate in all of the blessings and the benefits of the new covenant, therefore we now have Christ not only as an older brother, but as our Lord and our sovereign king. And it's him who rules us and guides us and leads us as our forerunner. Which is to say that when we come out of the water, so to speak, it is signifying that we are not who we were when we, before we died with Christ. We are new creations. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so we walk accordingly then. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, Paul says. Elsewhere, walk in a manner worthy of Jesus Christ. Elsewhere, he says, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. When we come out of the baptism waters on the other side, we are new creations walking in new ways because we've been given new life in Christ. That's why, for instance, when we do baptisms in our own church, we instruct, just as is our tradition, all of the congregation, the members of our church, to say loudly, to shout when we bring uh, the person being baptized out of the water, to say, walk in newness of life. And there's a sense in which when that individual is being, figuratively speaking, raised from the dead, the first thing their new ears hear is the militant church, redeemed by Christ, all shouting with one voice to follow Christ. And that's what we want their ears to hear for the first time, that they would walk in newness of life. And so here we have baptism defined it is, signifies fellowship with Christ of our being engrafted into Him and of our remission of sins. Well, finally, in the last three paragraphs there of chapter 29, we see the administration of baptism. We see, first of all, and this is somewhat of a given uh, because of everything that we've talked about so far in paragraph 2, that those who personally profess repentance toward God and faith in and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ are the only 
proper subjects of this ordinance. So when we say a credible profession of faith, what do we mean? By credible, we mean it is not just a faith professed. It's not mere words regurgitating the gospel or a prayer that's been prayed. A credible profession is one in which, by the grace of God, saving faith has been enjoined like twin graces conjoined with repentance of a turning away from sin and a turning to Christ in faith to receive Him and to rest in Him and to follow Him. And while new converts may over time grow in their manifestation of that kind of obedience with the Spirit's help, we see it initially through, through their willingness to obey Christ in baptism and to turn from their sinful ways of life, including perhaps sinful relationships, sinful habits and addictions, or many other things, to turn to Christ in faith. These are those, according to a credible profession, to whom baptism is rightly administered, and only to these. Now, inherent in this conversation of proper subjects is what about children? We have an entire position paper as a church on baptism, children, and membership, and so I would encourage you to pick that up. Uh, if you're currently going through our membership process right now, that'll be sent out to you this week in an email as you were in our membership class recently, and so you can peruse through that. And that's just to say that there is uh, wisdom to be involved here. On the one hand, uh, we want to not withhold baptism from any who have a credible profession of faith. And yet at the same time, we want to recognize that a credible profession of faith is demonstrated in the very least, by a repentance leading unto life, not merely a worldly sorrow, and it takes time to discern that. It also means that we can't separate baptism from church membership, and so Baptists up until recently would never have done so. To baptize someone is to baptize them into the membership of the church because it signifies not only union with Christ, but it also brings them into communion with His saints. We've gotten into a bad habit, I think, as evangelical churches of baptizing people and not bringing them into the membership of the church with all of the rights and privileges and discipline therein. Baptism and membership in the church go hand in hand and cannot be divorced. And so when we think about children in our own church who might be eligible for baptism on the basis of a credible profession, there's a number of things that we ask. Number one, do they understand the gospel? And we want as elders to spend time talking with them about the nature of God's Word and of who God is and of Christ, of what the gospel is, of its various blessings and benefits. And we want to just, putting the cookies on the bottom shelf, begin those conversations. That we would recognize, for instance, that those of us who are laboring to bring up our children in the fear and instruction of the Lord... Lord willing, would have no problem sitting with another Christian as they get older and mature and begin to articulate these things to talk about the most basic doctrinal truths of the Christian church. This is why I would encourage every parent in our church, for instance, to consider the prudential use of catechisms. It's through questions and answers. It's training and equipping and instructing our children in the basic doctrines of the faith. 
such that when the church now makes a judgment on any one of our children to receive baptism and come into the membership of the church, we know at the very least what they mean when they say God and Jesus and gospel and faith and heaven and the church and a whole host of other things because you have been diligently for years instructing them. At that case, we're just looking for evidence. Now, we, we typically say as a church, we don't push it all the way back to 18 like some, of, uh, some other like-minded churches might do. We typically say the most fruitful time to probably begin having those conversations is right around adolescence. We're prudentially willing to have them earlier. We don't expect them to show much fruit until they begin to go through adolescence and post-adolescence because it's there that they begin to distinguish, not, not separate or divorce, but distinguish love for Christ and loyalty to Christ from love and loyalty to parents. Those two should go hand in hand. That one who loves, Christ, one who loves his parents, insofar as his parents are godly Christian parents, should want to love their parents' redeemer because they've labored to, to show and to preach him to them. And yet there should be a distinction between the two because they don't come into the kingdom of heaven on the coattails of their parents' faith. It has to be their faith. And so there's wisdom in its application to the proper subjects. But then moving on, we see the proper elements in verse 3, that the outward elements to be used in this ordinance is water, in which the individual is to be baptized according to the formula that we see in Matthew 28. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Now, I do want to say that that should be normative according to the commission of Christ that we do find in the book of Acts, for instance, that uh, some converts are baptized in the name of Christ only. So we see two. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now... Can we say on the one hand that to baptize someone in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is to give reference to both the Father and the Spirit? Well, yeah, of course it would be. That would be true. And so is it absolutely necessary then for the Trinitarian formula to be used in order for a baptism to be valid? This was a question of a saint that came into our church some, numbers, some number of years ago. And they had been baptized previously in the name of Christ. They visited another church that demanded that they be baptized again because even though they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, they weren't baptized according to a triune formula. And so they refused to recognize the validity of its baptism. They didn't linger long there at that church. They came to ours confused. And we recognized the way the stance that we took and the way that we would recognize the scriptures is that the normative way in which we baptize when we administer is through the triune formula of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit according to the commission of Christ to his churches. And yet, given the apostolic example in the book of Acts of baptizing the name of Christ without reference, at least explicitly, to the Father and the Son, though it may not be normative, it is not invalid, and we're happy to accept his baptism as a believer. And he was a faithful saint in our church, grew in grace, got married. He's no longer with us, but praise God for him. So the normative way in which uh, baptism is to be administered is in that triune formula. James Renahan says this, naming the triune God in baptism is no ritual, but it is a sacred act, a reminder that the one professing Christ's lordship 
is doing so in the presence of and in dedication to the one true living God. That leads us to the final paragraph in considering the proper mode of baptism. Immersion or dipping of the person in water is necessary for this ordinance to be administered properly. Now, the older confession in the older language says this, to the due administration of this ordinance, and I think that's an important addition, the due administration of this ordinance. The modernized version leaves out the due administration, and I want to add it in here. First of all, the Greek word baptizo, uh, unlike a lot of Greek words, is not translated into another English word. It's transliterated. Mary, what's a transliteration? From the Greek into English. You just sound it out. That's exactly right. Mary's in Greek right now. So, baptizo is where we get our word baptize. Right? So, it's not translated, it's transliterated. And the normative use of the Greek word baptizo is to immerse or to dip. It is not the normative use to sprinkle and so on and so forth, though it can be used in terms of ritual washings, and we see that in a couple of places in the New Testament. But the primary way of speaking about it, the primary use, both in New Testament Greek as well as in uh, the broader Greek usage, is immersion or dipping. And every shade of Baptist has always argued the lexical argument for baptizo, that is of immersion or dipping. But it says here that uh, it's necessary to the due administration of this ordinance. What is meant by the due administration of the ordinances? While Baptistic Congregationalist churches would only practice immersion as the due method of administration, which is to say, for instance, if we were to baptize anyone in our own church, we wouldn't sprinkle them, we wouldn't dump water over their head, we would immerse them completely because we understand that to be what baptizo to mean. At least... Some of the churches would receive members who were baptized as believers, but not by due means. In other words, what they would do is they would distinguish between a valid, or to put it another way, irregular against the rule of Scripture, and yet lawful. So it is lawful and valid, and yet it is irregular against the rule of Scripture. And you're going to find a number of Baptist churches that are going to be more or less strict along this spectrum. In the past, we have, we've only had one instance of a believer who was baptized as a believer by another Protestant church, not through immersion, but through the pouring of water over their head. And so we had to have a lengthy discussion about the proper mode of baptism. Was it necessary for this person to be baptized or baptized again? But if it's improper, we'd say baptized for the first time, legitimately through immersion. And we talked for some time as elders, and we, and we studied, and we sought counsel. And ultimately, where we fell was, though our conviction as a church is to administer baptism through immersion only because we understand that to be what Scripture teaches. That to do ministry in our context with a whole host of other churches that might have subtle differences in what they understand baptizo to mean, 
that there's room for flexibility to look at that saint and say, we believe that your baptism is irregular against the rule of Scripture, and yet because it was a credible profession, is your credible profession as a true believer, you've continued to walk in Christ, you're a member of that church, it was accepted by another Baptist church since you were baptized, now we're the third church you've been at since you were baptized in that way, we're inclined to accept your baptism as valid but irregular. We're not going to make you get baptized again. Even though we wouldn't baptize anybody that way. And that's what at least Rinehan argues, who's the living expert on the Second London Confession, he argues that that do means, that a due administration of this ordinance implies that prudential category of valid and lawful but irregular. Okay? So that's what we're talking about in terms of baptism. That it is only those who have credible professions of faith that are to be baptized in water according to a triune formula through immersion, because that's what baptizo means. And that baptism, therefore, is a sign, but not a seal. It is a sign of our fellowship with Christ, of our being engrafted into Him, of our remission of sins, and of submitting ourselves to God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life.